Good evening and a very warm welcome to you as we settle in for what I expect will be a stimulating and revealing conversation tonight here at the University of Sydney's Nano Science Hub here in the Messel Theatre. Uh, my name's Dan Gaffney, I'm your host for this evening. And before I say more, let me acknowledge and pay respect to the original people of this place. Uh, the traditional owners of the land here that we're meeting upon, which is the land of the Gadigal people in the greater Aora Nation. The University of Sydney is built on their ancestral lands. So as we engage and learn from each other this evening, let's also consider and respect the deep wisdom and the stories that are embedded here in the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Tonight is the third of four Sydney Ideas Health Forums for 2016. Um, and shortly we'll be hearing about five little-known ways that our hearts can fail us and cause death. Uh, leading us in the discussion, we have four University of Sydney scholars. Uh, from, left, from your left to right, we have Tom Buckley, Chris Samsarian, Andrew McLaughlin and Jörg Eberhard, who I'll introduce more fully in a moment. Uh, now, a few rules of engagement um, so that we can proceed with ease and grace. Uh, to begin, one of our panellists will lead off and uh, speak a little about one of the five causes of heart death, after which we'll immediately take questions from you on the floor and also from our Twitter feed. Um, if you're following along tonight on Twitter, um, you can use the hashtag SIDHealth. To ask a question, simply raise your hand and we'll get a microphone to you to ensure that we get across all five principal causes. I'll make sure that we segue from each main speaker as we proceed. A reminder that tonight's, uh, uh, tonight's event is actually being audio recorded and there will be a podcast available to share and listen to after tonight's conversation. Uh, you can find, in fact, all the Sydney Ideas podcasts at soundcloud.com forward slash there on the screen, as you can see. Um, also, a request with regard to questions, um, please ask questions only um, and, uh, and avoid, if you can, asking for personal health advice. We won't be diagnosing or curing anybody tonight. Uh, also, for context and to set the scene a little bit, a few fast facts about heart death. Each year, 56,000 Australians uh, have a heart attack and of this number, about 9,000 will die and that's about the equivalent of 150 heart attacks each day or one every nine minutes. Um, also, to get a quick snapshot of who's in the room here, um, if you would please raise your hand if you have a personal connection to this conversation tonight about hearts um, and heart related death. So if you just uh, if you have if you have a personal connection so we have an idea of who's in the room and perhaps why you're here. Thank you. Um, and also um, if you have any kind of uh, professional relationship this you may be a clinician, you may be a researcher, you may be a philanthropist. Thank you. So we have three quarters of the room with a very personal professional interest in the topic. Wonderful. So without further ado, uh, allow me to introduce First of all, Associate Professor Tom Buckley. He's a faculty member of the Sydney Nursing School and teaches critical care nursing to our students. Tom has a particular research interest in the relationship between emotion and cardiovascular risk. He and his colleagues do clinical research on this subject and other topics here at the University of Sydney and at Royal North Shore Hospital. To Tom's uh, left and your right, we have Professor, Professor Chris Samsarian, who is an internationally regarded cardiologist and um, with a long uh, and eminent record of published research on genetic heart disease 
and sudden death, as well as the management of individuals and families that have or who are at risk of inherited cardiac disorders. Chris has appointments at the University of Sydney, at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, at the Centenary Institute as well. He's also Director of the Australian Genetic Heart Disease Registry. Next we have Professor Andrew McLaughlin, who is Program Director of the National Health and Medical Research Council's Centre for Research Excellence in Medicines and Ageing. He's also Leader of the Health Services and Patient Safety Research Team here at the University's Faculty of Pharmacy. He's a pharmacist, an academic uh, and a researcher with, a deep, with deep experience in clinical and experimental pharmacology and research on the quality use of medicines. Last but not least, Professor Jörg Eberhard is a dental science researcher and is the first Chair of Lifespan oral, uh, of Oral Health here at the Faculty of Dentistry and also at the Charles Perkins Centre here at the University. Uh, Jörg is interested in the relationship between oral, dental and systemic health, including cardiovascular disease, diabetes, sleep apnea, obesity and diet. Uh, Jörg's work is focused on translating new research discoveries in the area of oral health to healthcare policies that can improve the health of populations. So without further ado, Tom, would you just lead off for us and tell us a little bit about the, the relationship between emotion and heart risk and heart attack? Thanks, Andrew, and good evening. Um, my area of interest is very much that link between emotions and risk of heart disease. Um, and very much looking at stressful time periods or periods in our life where we go through intense emotion, um, whether it be um, anger, which we'll talk about in a second, or uh, bereavement, which we'll talk about a little later on this evening. Can you say a little bit more about anger then? What's, can can a, a, a fit of anger actually lead to a heart attack? Sure. We, we conducted a study where we uh, evaluated what individuals were doing before they actually had a confirmed heart attack. Um, the study took about six, seven years to do. And from that, what we observed was there was a very small cohort of individuals who had reported anger uh, prior to the, their, their heart attack. Um, when we looked at the levels of anger that they had um, in, that, in that cohort, we found that uh, the, the probability of their heart attack occurring within two hours of that um, uh, anger event um, was was over eightfold higher than it was at any other time in the in the previous year. Um, in in that study, uh, what we saw was that the the levels of anger um, it wasn't just any level of anger. So the you know individuals did report different levels of anger, but it was that high intense level of anger. <coughs> excuse me, that was associated. <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> with higher risk. Why is it when you talk, you always need to cough? <laughs> so while Tom's drinking, um, it, you would, if you want to put up your hand and you have a question, we'll get a mic to you. So mm. be thinking about that as Tom's speaking, if you would. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so it was that high, intense anger. So the, the lower level anger, um, we didn't find was associated with increased risk. But when that anger got to a level where um, individuals reported you know, being furious, um, ready to burst, fist clenching, that high, high intense um, that when we saw that marked increase in their risk. Andrew's got a question. I was going to ask, how do you measure levels of anger? Have you got an anger meter? Or uh, <laughs> what, what's the, you know, uh, one person's anger. My wife gets angry. I know when she's angry. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know when it's serious or not, but I know my wife. 
Uh, so, but when you're doing a study on anger, yeah. how do you measure, I suppose, the degree of anger? Yeah, and no, that's a good question. <clears throat> and uh, you know, we often say pain is what the person says it is. And yeah. in, in these studies, when we measure emotions, um, we have to rely on what the, the person says it is. Um, we do have validated tools for measuring anger. Okay. Um, these tools have been reported in other studies, right. um, and uh, the descriptors on that have been validated. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Presumably they've started to sort of calm down a little bit. That's a good, it's a good question. In, in our study, what we saw was the, the risk was from the time of the anger, but the risk remained out to two hours. Um, after that two-hour period, the risk died off. And so um, you know, those acute physiological responses um, that we know occur in, in high emotional states, um, our interpretation here is that they're... Um, they, they increased the risk in that short period, but after the two hours, um, we didn't see that risk. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. Did it have any relation to, to the, what you might call the resting blood pressure of that person before they had the heart attack, or could a person who had quite a low blood pressure not have the heart attack? Or? That's a good question because in this particular study, unlike a study we'll talk about later, in this particular study we didn't measure, you know, we didn't have the ability to measure blood pressure, heart rate during the time of anger. Um, and I guess that's one of the difficulties in doing this type of work is that you can't prescribe anger um, and you're generally going to be very lucky as a researcher to be present in the acute uh, moment of anger. Um, but what we do know from both animal studies and from laboratory studies where they have um, induced um, emotional state in humans, we do know from that that there are raises in blood pressure, raises in heart rate, um, and studies showing that uh, some of the changes in the blood also result in a, a higher risk of, of blood clot. Um, so those changes in the, both the hemodynamic blood pressure, heart rate, and the changes that occur in our coagulation system that's responsible for clots um, are likely to be the mechanism at play here. Question. So, Tom, just following you along the same lines, really, did other people have really angry episodes as well but didn't have a heart attack? Like you said that there was a small cohort. So are we yeah. certain that there's actually a relationship or it just... Um, happened serendipitously that some you measured and it just happened they had an anger episode beforehand whereas others had an anger episode but it wasn't related? Yeah, that's no, a good question and, and it, so there was a cohort of individuals who reported anger. Um, uh, when we look at the level of anger and we, so when we categorise those individuals by a level so whether it was, um, you know, if one is calm and eight is you know, as angry as you can be and enraged what, what we found was it wasn't until we got above level five that we started to see a correlation with the risk. Um, what we did in this study is we used a, a, a study design that was, um, that's often used in, the, in these types of studies where the individuals act as their own control. So we look at their usual frequency of that type level of anger um, over the previous year. 
Um, so we did this we did it in two ways. We did that, but we also measured their state anger as they reported it prior to the myocardial infarction. So whichever way we looked at it, trying to trying to control for these biases that you, you you're alluding to, we still found that there was a significantly higher risk um, following the anger. I think it is important that not every level of anger was associated with risk. Um, uh, it was purely when we got to that threshold of level five and above that we saw the risk. More questions, hands up, we'll get a mic to you. Tom, a uh, question that occurs to me is, uh, do people with pre-existing heart cardiac conditions, are they more at risk of this association between a fit of anger and the outcome? That's a great question. And uh, there was a study in 2013 from Harvard University that um, uh, uh, looked at anger um, in cohorts. And they did a comparison compared with those who had pre-existing heart disease and those who didn't. And uh, it might sound unintuitive, but the group who had pre-existing heart disease had, had a lower risk. Um, but when you looked at that cohort, they were also all more likely to be on cardiac protective medications. Um, so that's probably the, as much as we're able to answer that question at the moment is from that study. Um, in our population of those who had anger-triggered heart attack, um, uh, none of them were on those cardiac medications. Yeah, question that occurs to me, Chris, you might have a comment here or uh, an answer. Uh, I mean, what proportion of the population would be on some kind of heart medication, talking general population? I think um, over the age of 45, there's probably about one in five people are on a medication of some description related to the heart. So it's a common yeah. occurrence. Yeah, so not surprising that this cohort, yeah. a lot of them are on it. Yeah. Questions? Is there similar studies that have been done with other physiological stress? So, for example, with stress testing or extreme exercise or anything like that correlating to heart disease or heart attack? Uh, sorry, could you just repeat the question? Oh, sorry. Does this have there been other studies done that just look at general physiological stress? So, an easy one to do, I suspect, would be correlating stress tests that patients go through, and whether that can induce a heart attack as well, in a similar vein to anger inducing a heart attack. So, I think your question is uh, uh, around physical activity. Um, uh, interesting. We presented some results from um, this this same cohort. Um, last year at the Cardiac Society meeting showing that uh, during the time of physical activity uh, the, the risk of having a heart attack was much higher than when you weren't actually physically active. Um, that risk was significantly higher in the more sedentary individuals, those who exercise less than once a week, um, and it was only slightly elevated, still significantly elevated, but only slightly in those that were exercised more than four days a week. Um, so, so that relationship's there. Of course, you've got to balance that risk while you're exercising with the fact that because you're physically fit, you're at lower risk while you're not exercising. So, um, you know, the, me the message there isn't to not exercise. It's just to be aware that um, the less physically fit you are exercising, um, the higher your risk. And, and the example I give of that is uh, any of us here who ever do the city to surf every year, um, 44,000 people running, of which probably about 2,000 are actually condi conditioned and fit to be there. Um, and the statistics would show that you'd, you'd get one mortality in every 44,000 people who compete a marathon. Um, and so it's more likely to be those that are uh, you know, less conditioned. So, so it's a good question because, um, of course, the, the, just with emotion, um, depend, depending on what your 
um, cardiac risk already is, depending on whether you're physically fit and active, depending on whether you have other cardiac risk factors already have high blood pressure, um, have high cholesterol, etc. So you know your absolute risk, your risk, long-term risk will be higher already. Um, and so these these acute triggers that we call them, such as acute emotion or in this case physical activity you've mentioned, um, then are an additional risk while you're exposed during that period. Thank you. Question at the back, and Jackie, one down. Um, there are some people who are more angry type people than others. Did you ask the people in your study if they were prone to quick anger? That's a great question. We didn't actually measure what you're referring to as trait anger. Um, the Harvard study did, um, and they didn't find any difference in those that are what we'd call the sort of angry people um, versus those that, you, that that had the episode of anger in that study. Um, what, they, what the discussion there was that um, your, your trait anger didn't seem to uh, modify the acute the acute sort of uh, you know, short-term risk while you're angry. Um, it's a good question because one of the things we've often talked about is you know people who keep anger in. Um, studies have shown that that actually they have work. You know that's not a good thing for your long-term cardiac health. Um, but that study didn't show that those individuals, when they have an outburst, were any worse or any better than the CAM individual that has an outburst. Uh, you've made a couple of references to emotion in general. Have there been studies or evidence to suggest that it's not just extreme anger, but let's say extreme like sadness or other emotions that can also increase the risk, even if temporarily? That's a good question. In this study, we also saw an association with anxiety, um, with acute anxiety uh, being associated with about a ninefold increased risk after the, the episode of anxiety. Um, that that's a little bit more difficult to unravel the relationship with anxiety because anxiety symptoms are very very often reported as an early symptom of an of an evolving heart attack. Um, and what we weren't able to do, one of the limitations in this study, that we were able to do with the anger. With the anger, we knew what caused it. We knew for most people it was arguments, mostly arguments with family members which I guess would have more meaning for people, um, but also arguments with others, um, work stress and um, driving stress. And, and that's been the same reported in that Harvard study as well, the same, same causes of the intense anger that, that appeared to trigger the myocardial infarction. Um, the anxiety was more difficult because participants weren't always able to tell us what the anxiety was related to. Um, so we can be less clear about that association, but our data would show that those that were experiencing very high levels of anxiety, um, there was about a ninefolding, you know, association with that and the onset of their symptoms. Um, but there have been studies related to other emotions, and, and there was a, a study in the media last week related to loneliness um, that, that's showing that you know your long-term health um, uh, and, and risk of premature mortality are higher in those that that report chronic loneliness. So that link with emotions and, and heart disease is, um, is becoming more established. Yeah. I had a very dear friend who died of cancer and before she died she told me that she had discovered that her anger had brought on her cancer 
I'm not quite sure how she discovered that, but she convinced me very firmly that anger can cause her cancer. That's a good observation, isn't it? I have a, I have a tendency to listen to people who, who have those intuitive feelings. Um, you know, when I... When, you, when people tell you they're hurting, they usually, you know, they usually point to the heart when they're hurting. They usually, um, you know, people intuitively have those feelings. Our studies haven't looked at that risk with emotional stress and cancer, so I'm probably not in a position to be able to add anything from an ev research evidence perspective. Um, but certainly, um, you know, there's a st studies done. There was one done in the um, in 1990s, and, and actually the one of the chief authors is here in the audience, Professor Toffler, um, that showed about 50% of people prior to having a heart attack can attribute um, a, an, a trigger or an event to the onset of that heart attack. So I think you know we we as researchers tend to listen to people like your friend. And, uh, and it's those reports that help us to then, as researchers, to look at it from a, in a scientific way to see is that relationship universal or is that unique to that individual? We have time for three more questions in this segment. We've got one here. So if you, uh, one or two other people who'd like to ask one, put your hand up, so first of all. Yeah. Yep. Hi. Um, uh, from the data that you collected from your results, what were the variations between your results between people of different sex, so female and male, as well as different age groups? That's a good question. We, we did have both males and females, and we did have a, a good um, uh, uh, representation of, of individuals in age. Um, we didn't have enough of in the sample to be able to do any statistics on that. Um, we were also interested in different coronary arteries that were blocked and looking at whether anger would have a different effect to what uh, our cardiologists see regularly. But we didn't have enough in, in our sample to be able to do that. Um, and it, it, it's, the, the research has shown that about 3% of heart attacks are triggered by anger. Um, and so you, when you look at a sample of um, uh, you know, 1,000 people, you will have 3% there who who will have that trigger anger triggered. And so you would need quite a few thousand in a study to be able to unpack and answer some of those really important and, and, and you know, clinically important questions. We weren't able to with our sample um, this time. Okay, so I've got a question that's taxed me for quite a long time, but it's a little bit ignorant. <laughs> so I may as well ask it since you're all here. We talk about stress and anxiety and anger episodes in this modern day. But I, I sort of look at research results and if they're consistent with what we observe in life. And I'm thinking in times of war, like the most extreme stressful position, situations that we can think of, resistance movements, all of those things, which are extreme stress. But I don't think we're seeing a whole lot of heart attacks. So I'm wondering, you know, what we're really looking at now. Are we different now? Or, you know, yeah. what, what is happening? Could we attribute everything to stress now? And I'm just wondering if there's something else we're missing or it's an easy attribution. Or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a brief answer and then I'm going to pass, pass the buck to somebody who's in the audience who would be in a better position to, to give detail on that. Um, 
I, I've thought a lot about this and actually was asked recently, you know, if um, our heart attack number is going up because we're experiencing more emotion. And I, I've rattled my brain on this a lot. And I did in the pool this morning, knowing I might get asked this. And one of the things I think about is that humans have always experienced emotion. I, I'm not convinced we're experiencing emotions different to how my grandparents experienced them. They would have had different triggers of those stress. Um, but, you know, I often think of my 92-year-old grandfather telling me how stressed he was, you know, trying to milk cows who are kicking him and cow poo going everywhere, you know. And, and that might have been as stressful as what it is for me when I hop in my car and drive to the northern beaches. Um, so I think humans have always experienced stress. There, there is evidence uh, around uh, in areas of conflict of increased cardiac events. There's, there was evidence from uh, New Zealand after the earthquakes. There was about tenfold increased presentation to emergency departments that week with cardiac symptoms. Um, so there is evidence around those, those events, both um, uh, man-made or natural events. Um, I, don't, I don't know if Professor Toffler is able to add to that uh, up there in the back. Um, but I, I know he's done some work uh, and reviewed some literature in that area. Um, Jeffrey, would you be happy to comment on that? related to, to the war zones, because there is some data there. Yep. Yeah, look, look, thank you very much. And just, just briefly, I can't really add much to what Tom said, but uh, there was some work in Bosnia during the, uh, the crisis there several years ago where they actually looked at the, uh, um, the city and found an increased risk of heart attacks. In terms of um, the statistical design, to actually look at a large number of people uh, in a brief period is, is difficult statistically, but for example, uh, there was a, um, a time of Scud missile attacks in Israel where they did a study and showed that there was an increased uh, number of heart attacks during the initial uh, missile attacks when people were sort of huddled in a, uh, um, in a small room with uh, gas masks on. And interestingly, in the same war in, uh, in Egypt, there was uh, increased risk of heart attacks at that time. So I think there are, from a statistical point of view, when we look at individuals, we have to look over a large number of, uh, of, of years. But uh, if you have a major event, such as in a war situation, there are some events to support that. We're going to cycle back to Tom uh, near the end of the presentation to talk a little bit more about grief. So we'll come back to emotion and cardiovascular risk. But thank you, Tom. Um, Professor Chris Samsarian, could you take us through a little survey or an excursion of the relationship between genetics and, and the risk of sudden cardiac death? Sure. Um, good evening, everyone. Um, we, when we think about heart disease, we usually think about somebody who's you know, fairly overweight, usually a male, um, watching TV all day, no activity, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, smoker. Uh, might reverberate with some people in the audience. Um, but you don't often think about young people with heart disease and young people having heart attacks and young people dropping dead on football fields. Young people can also get heart disease. And it's often not those environmental factors that we talk about. It's more often an underlying genetic fault that they're born with. So each one of us in this room have about 22,000 genes and a fault in one of those genes, a spelling mistake in a book, as you can think about it, a fault in one of those genes can lead to a life-threatening condition which affects either the electrical system of the heart, called arrhythmias, or to the structural aspect of the heart, often called cardiomyopathies. So heart attacks uh, in young people occur and they're often genetically related. 
Um, when we talk about heart attacks, we usually mean a blockage of an artery. But when I'm talking about young people with heart disease, I'm also talking about electrical short-circuiting of the heart. So not a blockage of the blood vessels. The blood vessels are fine, but a short-circuiting of the electrical system which leads to sudden death. So genetics plays an important role along with many of the environmental factors that Tom has already alluded to and the ones I briefly mentioned like smoking and blood pressure. How common are the spelling errors and how many people might be at risk? Well, sadly, we all have spelling errors, errors in our genetic makeup. We have thousands and thousands of them, but they're usually in places which don't matter in the genome. But if you have a fault in a gene that's in a, in a critical, say, let's say an ion channel which allows sodium and potassium in and out of the cells, it can lead to a life-threatening event. And we believe the most common genetic heart condition, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, affects probably between 1 in 200 and 1 in 500 people. So there might be one or two people in this audience, which of course is a biased audience because there might be some patients here, uh, will have the condition. Questions? Do we have questions? Yes, over here. Some time ago I looked at the um, SNPs related to familial hypertension. Yep. And the only thing that I could find that seemed to have any credence was in ENOS. Mm -hmm. um, do you know if that's that yeah, so, what you're talking um, about? Hypertension is an interesting sort of scenario. 95% of hypertension we don't find a cause directly. We call it essential hypertension. We treat it well but we don't know the cause. There are some inherited conditions that cause hypertension. Um, what I was alluding to in my initial presentation is faults in genes which directly lead to disease. So they cause the disease. We also know changes in our genetic makeup which don't directly cause disease but can increase your risk of developing hypertension, uh, diabetes, kidney disease, etc., etc. So these are what we call, as you said, SNPs or polymorphisms or variations in our genome which don't cause disease but make us at more greater risk of developing a complication. The ENOS system is a system that's involved in blood pressure regulation and, and is a good player in the field, but we don't know good information about whether it's actually the cause or a bystander. Is there any way to predict these juvenile heart attacks? Yes, so um, to use the words heart attack, you're talking about a blockage of an artery. The, the, the genetic risk factors for blocked arteries is, is a fairly minimal component in people with at risk of developing heart attacks. It's more environmental factors. But what's absolutely critical for everyone in the audience, especially young people, to know is their family history. So if you have two parents who've had early heart disease, early coronary artery disease, bypass surgery, you know, under the age of 50, if both your parents, if one of your parents has a, a, an early presentation, your risk is doubled. If both your parents have it, your risk is tenfold higher of developing heart disease. So family history is really important in that sort of situation. And any history of anyone having early heart disease or even a sudden death in the family early on that was unexplained, and they're often disguised. It's, you know, the drowning that occurred in a 14-year-old in the family. And then you look into the history, the, that 14-year-old could swim perfectly. So yes, they drowned, but they drowned probably because they had some sort of heart incident that caused them to drown. So sometimes the history is a bit masked. We're not really sure. Somebody who was a driver in a car, a young person, middle of the day, first hour of the drive and runs into a pole. You know, you wonder what, whether, you know, was that actually an accident or did he have some sort of heart issue? So family history is really important in predicting, uh, plus all the general lifestyle things which we've talked about, which are always good for everyone. 
make sure your cholesterol is good, make sure your blood pressure is good, do lots of physical activity. In answer to that question earlier, there are some, the gentleman uh, with the beard, um, uh, there, are, there are some examples um, where very severe levels of exercise in people like Tom who do ultra marathons and things like that, there is some evidence that if you do too much exercise, it can actually cause some damage to the heart. Um, but generally speaking, please don't get the message from tonight that physical activity is fantastic <laughs> and you should all be doing 150 minutes of exercise per week. Um, that's um, 30 minutes five times a day. That's the Heart Foundation recommendations. And physical activity, physical inactivity, inactivity is the fourth leading cause of death worldwide. So uh, if you just walk every day, that's a good step to reducing your risk of heart attack. Thanks, Prof. You've answered the first part of the question I was going to ask in terms of other than family history and um, actual sudden cardiac death, um, how do these conditions generally present? And on the flip side, going in on down the line of what you've commented on, um, how do we investigate them um, within the medical community? What's the pathway for there's a positive family history? Um, are the genetic tests up to scratch at the moment or is there still more work to be done? Yes, that's a great question. So if you have a family history of, let's say, a young person dying suddenly in the family or early heart disease, the first evaluation is a clinical evaluation where you take a history from the patient, you examine them, and you do a basic profile of their risk. So their bloods, their cholesterol, their blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in a young person at risk of developing one of these cardiomyopathies or rhythm disorders of the heart, if there is a family history, we do know a lot about the genetics of these conditions. So the whole idea here is if we can identify a gene cause in an individual, we can initiate prevention strategies to stop them getting cardiac arrest or sudden death or whatever it might be. And by that, it can be as simple as lifestyle modification, so avoiding very intense exercise. It could be a medication or it could be these devices <coughs> which you put under the chest wall called the implantable defibrillators which prevent young people dying suddenly. So there is a pathway there for investigation, but family history is really important. Your question about genetics, I mean, I'm, I'm not that old, but 10 years ago it took us one year to look at one gene. To analyse one gene, it took us one year. Today, I can take Tom's blood. In fact, I'll scrape a bit of his skin on his way out because this guy's an elite, an elite athlete as well, so we, we need to study athletes a bit more. Um, but we can take his blood, take his sample, extract the DNA, and within two to three weeks, I'll have a file on the cloud that I'll download onto my computer and I can look at every genetic variation in Tom's 22,000 genes in a few weeks. So the technology is incredible. The change in 10 years from one gene for a year to 22,000 genes in three weeks. The problem is we don't know a lot about what those genes actually do. We know a lot about some of the cardiac genes because our group and others have focused on studying these genes, but there's a lot of unknowns as well. So in terms of cardiac genetic testing, genetic testing to find heart diseases and prevent problems, we're really doing well. I think Australia is leading the field. Uh, we just published a few weeks ago a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is the Everest of medical journals in the world, and it's basically a representation of all of Australia's history in terms of sudden death in young people and how we investigate and how we treat and how we prevent. So we're, we're leading the world in that area, and, and um, I think 
there's a lot to be done, but there's a lot of progress that's been made already. Supplementary, Chris, you said there's 22,000. We don't know what all those genes do. How many genes have you and your colleagues around the world identified that put people at increased risk for sudden cardiac death? Well, it's a combined effort, so we've done a lot of work, but there's many groups around the world, and it's a, it's a very good community internationally where we're trying to un understand why young people get heart disease and sudden death. But at the moment, we believe of those 22,000 genes, probably there's a top 200 genes that we believe are important and faults in those genes can lead to sudden death and heart attacks. Um, and so we usually focus on those genes first. If we don't find anything there, then we do a more expansive analysis what some of you may have heard of whole genomes or whole exomes where we look at all the genes. Question up the back. Yeah, um, just with genetic factors, is there an increased prevalence in male or female children? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So almost all the genetic heart conditions are inherited in a way that's called autosomal dominant, which means if I have a genetic heart condition, my children, whether they're boys or girls, have got a 50% chance of having the same condition. So that's the traditional pathway in terms of inheritance in these conditions. There are occasionally diseases which are called X-linked, which are only in males, but the vast majority is males are equal to females. And in reference to the question that the young lady asked earlier, I mean, it's interesting because genetically they're equally affected, males and females, but males tend to do a bit worse than females. And we don't know why that is. Um, but that's, that's, uh, that's the inheritance pattern. If there's no further questions, I'm going to ask one while we might get a mic to somebody. Um, Chris, no, we have a question? Yep. Thank you. Okay, thank you for the opportunity. And I would like to ask about uh, epigenetics. You know, sometimes external or environmental factors could cause uh, certain genes to uh, turn on or turn off, which could express the how the cell express uh, the protein. So is there any uh, detailed researches about this epigenetics to the heart attacks? Thank you. Nice question. Um, uh, for those, so we're going to go a bit more complicated with genetics. So, so far what I've told you about is genetics is faults in the main, what we call the coding part of the genes, the gene part that leads to the protein that's made. So that's the baseline genetics. What we're talking about here is you can have a fault in a gene, but you can also have regulators of the gene. So things, genetic factors, other factors which make the gene turn on more or turn off more. And whether there's a, an influence of that, we actually don't know a lot about that. We know a lot about that in cancer genetics, where, where you can regulate how much the gene for cancer is, is up or down regulated. But in cardiac genes, we're really at the first steps of trying to work out what the causes are. Certainly from a research perspective, very interesting. But we've got to work out the 22,000 genes first. So if there's any young people out there, you can be guaranteed of a career in research in genetics in cardiac because there's going to be cardiac genes to be studied for the rest of our lives. So I, I encourage you all to do that. Yes. Could you tell us about the impact of um, some family um, history things like severe asthma and so on, on the impact of that on people's hearts? Um, there's no specific, I'm just trying to think, in terms of the example of asthma, um, I mean, some of the medications may affect function of the heart. For example, some of the medications might make your heart rate go faster. But you'd have to have an underlying issue with the heart for those triggers to act. 
you know, if you've got a normal heart with a normal genetic makeup, it's unlikely those factors will have much influence. Um, but we always ask about those questions and sometimes the diseases are unmasked clinically by something like a trigger. They take a medication which alters their ECG or, or their heart rate or something and it unmasks the disease. So sometimes it helps us to make a diagnosis but we, don't, we, we take that history, of course, very, very important to take those bits of history but usually the link is harder to prove. Uh, Chris, based on the numbers you talked about before, uh, it's likely that maybe one or two people in the room have a spelling error that puts them at risk for a sudden cardiac event from a genetic fault. What is the, um, what's the role of public policy in defibrillators? Can you talk about that? Yeah, so the, I guess in all our talks and presentations today, I mean, if we want to prevent people dying suddenly in the community, the obvious things to do, uh, the two things are that everyone should learn how to do CPR. So everyone, I believe, every Australian should know how to do CPR. It's a basic life-saving skill. You don't know whose life you're going to save. We don't have to do mouth-to-mouth -mouth anymore. It's just chest compressions. And if you all know the song, Staying Alive, that's the rate at which we have to do CPR. So if you remember that song, does everyone know that song? You little, little Everyone knows Staying Alive. Bee Gees, right? Even the young people know Staying Alive. The British Heart Foundation did that's the most amazing screen. campaign where they had showing how to do CPR with staying alive in the background. So that's number one, CPR is absolutely important. And the second thing which is life-saving is the public access defibrillator. So defibrillators have to be everywhere and I'm sure as you walk around you see them in buildings, you see them in shopping centres, you see them in airports, but they need to be everywhere. A simple little example is um, I found out recently I had a family who'd lost a loved one, a young boy, at a school. Uh, he had a cardiac arrest out of the blue often the presentation of some of these conditions is sudden death for the first time. No warning symptoms, sudden death. She raised the money as a grieving mother and bought a defibrillator to give to the school, to have one there just in case the next child has a cardiac arrest. The school weren't allowed to take it. She came to me and I couldn't believe the rule and I looked up the law and said in New South Wales public schools defibrillators are not allowed to be in the schools because it's stressful for the teachers to use it if they need to and this sort of thing. So crazy. So what does one guy, a simple guy from University of Sydney do? So I couldn't believe it. I did something I'd never done which is put out on a petition and an online petition, 60,000 signatures in two weeks. I then got a meeting with Mike Baird and we sat down for 45 minutes. I took a defibrillator with me and despite what everyone says about Mike Baird, I've got no conflict of interest. He's actually a nice guy. He's actually, <laughs> he's actually a nice guy. And he said, this is ridiculous. He said, this is an outdated law and changed the law in December last year. So at least now schools can have it. So CPR and defibrillators are the best ways to prevent, uh, to treat cardiac arrest and heart attacks. And the figure you should have in your head that every minute that goes past after somebody collapses, if I collapse now, every minute that goes past my survival drops by 10%. So by five minutes, 50% chance of survival and I'll probably have brain damage. If we have CPR, someone comes down and does CPR, someone gets a defibrillator, my survival chance is much higher. So it's a long-winded answer, but it's a very passionate area. And a great example of, you know, the ivory tower making a real difference in the world. How about that? Public policy change. Well done. Um, if there are no further questions, any further questions for Chris, we'll, we'll move to Andrew. Anyone? Uh, the gentleman in glasses. Um, my question is very brief. Seeing as genetics don't change in an individual, how important do you think it would be to collect the genes of 
I guess, the people who are at greatest risk and store them to be researched further and further in the future? Um, would that be a way to go about increasing our research into genetics, particularly if it's for infant you know, cardiac events? Yeah, so we do that in our research group. We collect blood samples. We do even blood samples from deceased people to try and find out why a person died suddenly. And we tell the families who we consent, we tell them that we're going to look at it today. But in 2020, the, the, this, the way we look at these genes and our understanding will improve every year that goes past, thanks to people like you doing ama amazing research. So we definitely do that. I'll give you one anecdote, which I think is the extreme end. In the, in the UK, there's a study at the moment where every newborn baby that's born, they take a blood sample and do a whole genome. They do the whole genetic profile, and they want to see how that genetic profile influences their care as they grow up as a child, teenager and adult and how it impacts on their health. Now clearly there are moral, ethical, other issues but this is happening. Technology is here. So that's an example of how genetics can impact your whole life from birth to death. Thank you. We might move to Andrew, Professor Andrew McLaughlin. Can you give us a yeah, my topic Thank seems uh, incredibly boring compared to what I've just heard and I'd rather just listen in. It's really <laughs> So I'm a, I'm a medicines man, I'm a pharmacist, I'm interested in how medicines can treat and prevent um, heart conditions. We know that um, uh, if you're a taxpayer, which I'm sure many of you are, except the students, you know, they'll pay tax later and they'll pay a lot more than us, um, that investment uh, is going into the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. So the PBS, that's the subsidised uh, access scheme for medicines and the vast majority of that money is spent on medicines, the top the top medicines that we spend most on and are most widely used are medicines for cardiovascular disease, so for heart disease. And, and most of those are actually for the prevention. So they're not actually a cost, they're seen as an investment, an investment of the health of the nation and really into prevention. So just heard from Chris the idea of identifying people at risk and managing that risk often by using a medicine uh, to ensure that we can, uh, based on good evidence, to prevent uh, heart conditions, either controlling blood pressure we heard about, lowering cholesterol, um, preventing the risk of, of clots uh, and the like. So these are an important part of it. The topic, of course, is about you know, your heart killing you and the, the harms that medicines can do, and that's a particularly interesting area. So if you're a, a been into a pharmacy with a cold, you said to the pharmacist, can I have something for my cold, please? They start to ask you a series of questions. Now, you're in there for a purchase. You'd like to get something to relieve your symptoms. But they keep asking you questions. They say, do you have any health conditions? Yeah, yeah, I've got this thing with my heart. Do you take any medicines? Well, I, uh, I do take some medicines for my uh, blood pressure, as an example. And the pharmacist starts to get very interested. So the idea, of course, is that if you do have heart disease and you're, or you're taking uh, medicines to reduce your risk of heart disease, there are some things that are available in the pharmacy and even in the supermarket uh, that if you take them in combination can lead to some harmful outcomes. So we know that some of those medicines that are available, as we say, over the counter or even in the supermarket can um, uh, upset or interact with the medicines you're taking and put you at substantial risk of harm. So if I just choose one example, there are um, obviously people whose heart is no longer working, their pump is starting to fail. Uh, and we've now got more and more evidence about what's the best combination of exercise, of support, of, of um, rehab, but also of medicines that we can, your doctor tweaks the dials and measures different things and gets the combination right to, for you so your heart can work efficiently, it can um, avoid being damaged 
Uh, and that sometimes that balance is really important depending on how much exercise you're doing, how much fluid you're taking in. Uh, and you may not know, but there are some medicines you can buy in the supermarket or, or in the pharmacy that if you took those medicines, it can really upset your heart failure and put you back into acute heart failure enough to land back in hospital. So a good example of that might be Nurofen. You've got a, a headache or you've got a sore knee from your arthritis, take some Nurofen, that can interact enough to lead to build up of fluid in your body, put a lot of pressure on your heart and land you back uh, even in hospital. So that idea of the, the combination of medicines that you take uh, become a very important part of, I suppose, the, the overall picture of your heart health. Medicines can prevent, they can obviously treat different things, they can also uh, harm your heart. And we're learning more about that when it comes to uh, looking at the safety of medicines and how they're used. So um, just tell me when to stop here. There's a range of um, medicines that we use for other conditions. So I'll give you one example. Uh, the, the treatments we have these days for cancer are more and more effective, uh, particularly if you look over um, you know, the last few decades. You look back at the treatments we had and you'd have to say that more and more people now are surviving cancer treatments and living longer afterwards. But what we also know is some of those treatments can do quite a bit of damage to your heart. Uh, and there's a very active area of research uh, here at the University of Sydney uh, and, and, of course, other institutions uh, looking at uh, the damage that some of the cancer treatments can do to your heart. How can we minimise that and how can we best you know, uh, treat people um, if, if they have those problems? Another area would be medicines that are used in the area of mental health. Very important for giving a person back control of their life and their emotions and, and the challenges that they face. But on <coughs> another part of it, they have the potential to uh, lead to uh, damage to your heart muscle uh, or even affect your heart rhythm. And these are some of the things that we look out for. I've only touched on just a few areas and one of the bigger challenges too is that dose becomes a very important thing. So if you're taking that medicine as recommended, as appropriate, the risk is one thing, but of course that risk increases substantially if you start to take a higher dose and of course cardiac or heart symptoms are a critical issue in overdose for those people you know, who find themselves in that very vulnerable situation. I've touched on uh, prescription medicines and I can give you a range of examples of a few, but don't forget there's a range of, um, I suppose, what we might call illicit drugs or social drugs which have a high risk of uh, leading to cardiac events. And uh, from time to time we see this unfold not only uh, in uh, older people who may have some heart um, risk factors, if you like, but also in younger people because we know that uh, many of the uh, party drugs, broadly described, are, are cardiac stimulants. They have a big effect on increasing the heart rate and they can also just disrupt rhythm. Uh, and as Chris was alluding to, how fast your heart is beating, but also whether it's coordinated, can have a big impact on um, you know, how your heart is functioning and, and can lead to serious cardiac issues. Thank you, Andrew. Pause looking there and take for your questions. questions. Thank you. Down the front here. And if you are the next person with a question, put your hand up so we can get the mic to you quickly. Up the back, thank you. Hi, this is mostly out of personal interest, but I'd like to know if there's any evidence or statistics on how SSRIs can affect your health, uh, your heart. Sorry. Um, so one of the so SSRIs is a, a class of medicine used to treat um, a range of health conditions, but including uh, mood disorders. So people who may have low mood, a very important medicine. Um, for, for people uh, to control uh, that aspect of, of their health. There's no um, particular direct concern if, if uh, 
you, uh, of SSRIs or that class of medicines on the heart. Um, but interestingly, every medicine carries some risk of unwanted effects. Um, that, that risk increases at higher doses uh, and also if you're predisposed to it. So um, while, uh, just speaking in very general terms, there's no major you know, concern there about uh, that combination and cardiac uh, issues. Thank you. Question? Next question. Yeah, hi. Um, I'd just like to ask you to speak a little bit about two common things that people take. One is caffeine yes. and the other is aspirin. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so uh, let's start with aspirin. So uh, aspirin, uh, a drug which um, an ex uh, comes from an extract of the willow bark, uh, actually synthesised by Bayer, you know, over 100 years ago now, in a medicine that has had not one life as a molecule but many. Uh, of course, it started its life at higher doses for as an analgesic, and um, we know used to uh, treat um, and uh, fever, a very important uh, use for it, uh, arthrit arthritic conditions. Uh, we now see it's used predominantly, the vast majority of doses are very low doses, what we consider low dose compared to what we saw in the past. So between 75 and 100 milligrams, just a, often a single little orange tablet that's enteric coated people take every day to prevent things. And really what it's doing is having an impact on how your platelets are functioning. They're the blood cells which lead to uh, um, have that sticky uh, feeling in your blood and are really trying to manage that. And, there's very, very good evidence now to show that if you're at risk of heart disease, being on low-dose aspirin is a very good way to prevent uh, problems going forward. Um, of course, the benefit of aspirin has been seen in a range of other areas, um, including reducing the, the burden of some uh, cancers, which is really quite interesting as well. So does it have an effect on your heart? Um, it has a very positive effect in preventing things, uh, uh, and that's why you know aspirin is so widely used. Of course, like every medicine, it, it carries some risks. We know that aspirin can... Uh, lead to uh, damage to your gastrointestinal tract, can affect your kidneys, but at low doses it's generally well tolerated and has a very well defined um, uh, pattern of unwanted effects that most doctors, pharmacists and healthcare professionals know about and know to monitor for. So let's come to the other one, caffeine. Uh, it's an area of research I've been very interested in because we've been studying the metabolism of caffeine. Uh, it shares a particular drug metabolising pathway with a range of other medicines and we use it often as a, a model drug to test how people break things down, how they metabolise things. Uh, it's not particularly influenced by genetics but it is influenced a lot by your diet and also other lifestyle things including smoking. So we know that caffeine um, is something that is ubiquitous in the community. It's in everything from chocolate of course uh, to that uh, mochaccino that you have in the morning. Um, soy, mochaccino, uh, sorry Chris, um, and uh, the low fat, I was just making sure you know, unless you're taking a statin. Um, and importantly, uh, it is a cardiac stimulant, it's, we, we use it for its central nervous stimulating properties, you know, I can't function without my coffee in the morning, but also of course it has the potential to stimulate uh, the heart. So um, again, there's no major concerns there um, other than of course if you are predisposed to uh, heart um, heart problems, particularly heart rhythm problems, uh, excessive amounts of caffeine and, and often where we see this is someone who might not just have a coffee or have several coffees but might start to take uh, some of the, the tablets which are out there. Um, but of course many of the drinks that are out there these days as well have relatively high dose of caffeine. So um, the uh, one dose form of caffeine of course is coffee 
And uh, if I think about um, in the cardiovascular space and evidence, there's been so many trials that have really tried to show, does it help, does it harm? I don't know where they're up to at the moment, but I still have a couple of coffees every day. Chris has obviously got a point here. I just want to add one, one thing, um, and that is in young people, the common ingestion of caffeine is through energy drinks. Yep. So this is a major public health problem. Um, energy drinks, they don't drink one at a time, they drink four or five at a time, double hit caffeines. And there's a, at least 12 cases in the US of sudden death in young people after ingestion of energy drinks, Red Bull, Mother, etc. And would you think so they were predisposed to that by some known or unknown risk? Was it simply I, just the caffeine? I, I th no, I think they had an underlying risk yeah. because you know literally millions of these drinks are drunk worldwide mm. every day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but if you have a predisposition to that, some underlying genetic problem or something like that, these energy drinks, these are the big things in young people at the moment. They don't drink cappuccinos, and if they do, it's slowly over half an hour. These guys drink four or five cans of Red Bull as they're going to school, and so I think that's just another factor we need to. to put sure. In, you know. And of course, the um, the calories, uh, the, the sugar content of. Uh, of often those drinks is also a major challenge uh, leading to the risk of metabolic disease, which we know, of course, is also associated with um, risk of heart disease. Yeah, they have no sugar energy drinks now to, to counteract that as go. well. That's it's, marketing it's crazy. for you, isn't it? It's crazy. Is Andrew okay with his soy latte? Does he need to? He's okay with the soy latte. No, no sugar. No sugar. I just wish, he wouldn't, I just wish he wouldn't wear the same shirt as I do. It's <laughs> my shirt. What were you doing in my cupboard, anyway? We have a question here, and then we've got up the back. Um, you're first, okay. Oh. Thank you. Go ahead. Oh, me? Yeah. Oh, okay. As you know, there's been a huge spike in male deaths in the country with prescription medications. Yes. Um, I'm just wondering what's being done about an education program for these men. Why is it men? Has it got anything... It, it, I know it's behaviour and they probably don't realise the doubling and tripling effects of the medications they're taking when they take alcohol as well. Mm -hmm. But I also wonder if there are very few pharmacists left like you, Andrew, and that a lot of pharmacists are wearing a pink colour. It's called Priceline. Am I allowed to say that? Sure. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering if what you see is the correlation between these male deaths... Why are they always male? So I, I think um, what you've presented there are probably about five topics, which might uh, be the topic for um, the Sydney ideas for the, for the next year, I would think. So uh, let, let's look at men's health. Uh, men's health, and particularly in rural communities, that's really a, um, identified as a, a major challenge. There have been um, you know, a range of initiatives, uh, both from the bottom up, uh, top down and bottom up, to really start to change, um, I suppose, the way um, men's behaviours and, and particularly uh, in providing support and access uh, in rural communities. But, you know, it's a difficult challenge. Um, if I, I speak to, I suppose, something more within my expertise, uh, you could see that I'm you know, quite promiscuous in talking about anything, um, I'll stick to uh, prescription medicine um, misuse. Uh, and, you know, I'm uh, proud to say that some of the uh, researchers in our faculty have really looked at some of the challenges uh, in that area and it is multifactorial. Uh, first of all, uh, it's about health literacy, what people understand medicines can do uh, and not really understanding the harms that they can provide. It's also about... Sorry? 
Yes, of course, self-harm is a, a, a real challenge, so that uh, takes into account a very important area of supporting people who are vulnerable uh, and what can be provided there. So access to medicines, uh, prescription medicines, is not necessarily straightforward. And uh, one pharmacist and even one GP might see a person present to them uh, with what are very credible um, symptoms and signs and might write a prescription to support. Uh, often we're talking about pain-relieving medicines in this situation and some of the stronger pain-relieving medicines. Uh, and actually understanding how and why people get access to those medicines is very important. There's been a range of uh, pharmacy initiatives to try and map using real-time monitoring the use of those different prescription medicines to look at people who are uh, gathering or hoarding uh, strong pain-relieving medicines to try and provide uh, some uh, protection, if you like, about access. But as you'd appreciate with any uh, complex situation like this, there's not one simple solution. There's a range of uh, multi-dimensional uh, fronts that need to be worked on. Uh, and I would say that um, I, like you, at times do worry about the future of my profession and how it's presented to the healthcare, uh, to the public. Um, and it's not just about how um, cheap a medicine is, it's also about, of course, what that medicine can do for your health and the advice that goes along the way. And that's the, the generation of pharmacists we're trying to train. So hopefully we'll get through this blip and not everyone will be wearing pink. Final two questions before we go to oral health. One here and then over here. Yep. I've got a very quick question about the <coughs> recommendation for dose of aspirin and the age. Um, I have a vague idea of like a recommendation of 80 milligrams per only week. Um, after age 40, would do the same work as the like one tablet a day. Is it like true? Or? Uh, so I might call on Chris. I think the proposal here is 80 milligrams a week rather than 80 milligrams a day, or low dose aspirin taken once a week. So first of all, we know that aspirin, uh, the effects of aspirin, uh, are relatively long lived, uh, and there's one some school of thought that maybe you don't need to take it every day. Uh, the challenge, of course, is that the more we take, the greater the risk of unwanted effects. Some of the things I mentioned there about uh, perhaps damage to your gastrointestinal tract or you know, the lining of your uh, intestine. Um, I, I'm not familiar with any particular evidence around once weekly dosing uh, compared to once daily. I've only seen data on uh, daily dosing. And here's another thing. If you miss one dose and you're taking it weekly, it's two weeks before you get your next dose. If you miss one dose and you're taking it daily, you'll get the dose the next day. So sometimes we um, try and have um, you know, uh, people-proof dosing regimens that really help people get the best effects out of their medicine. So I might take that on notice. I'll go and look it up and see if I can't find you know, the once-a-week aspirin evidence. I'm not familiar with it myself. Thank you. And final question. A question on the drugs. Yes. After a heart attack, everyone seems to be given a statin. Yes. Um, Vitamin S. <laughs> uh, is there any place for a statin if you have a cholesterol level of 3, 3.2? Yeah, so um, again, I'm, I'm reluctant to give specific advice because um, uh, let, let me just track back a bit. The, the, um, you know, we make decisions about what's the best medicine, what's the best treatment based on studies, on evidence. Uh, and we, we try and make sure that the decisions we make are well-founded and based on solid information to make a decision that is in the best benefit of the person and minimising things like cost, but of course harm to that person as well. 
Uh, and the evidence is very clear, um, depending on the characteristics of the person. If they've had um, a, mic, a, heart, a heart attack, that after that, the, <coughs> it's now a different ballpark um, because the risk of having another one is a lot higher. So the strategies are to say, let's put a people, it's usually not just on a, a medicine to lower your cholesterol, it's usually on a, a cluster of medicines. So people go from sometimes no medicines to you know, four medicines or more because we know that that combination is actually likely to prevent them having another attack. There may be some situations where perhaps a statin isn't recommended, but it, um, remember that's one risk factor among many. And uh, the general approach, though, is that we uh, try and uh, take on each of those factors. The, the other, of course, body of evidence which is growing and growing is that the, the class of medicines called statins, which people would have heard about, they do lower your cholesterol, but they seem to have other benefits as well. And some of the studies have shown that even in people that have cholesterol within normal range, there appears to be benefits provided from those medicines. So um, understanding what the harmful effects are and letting a doctor know about those or pharmacist is very important. But you know they are a class of medicines which are often hotly debated in the media and often in medical circles we're not sure what people are talking about because we know them to be very effective medicines uh, and generally very safe. But of course... Uh, sometimes much maligned. So, but, um, um, another bit of a qu the same question. After a heart attack, uh, metoprolol, do you take that for life or is that... Because you sometimes read that after three months it's not certain whether that's having any effect or not. So um, metoprolol is a, a type of medicine what we, that we call a beta blocker. It has a, an effect on your heart rate. It keeps it under control. And one of the things that we were talking about earlier, about different types of st stress or stimuli or other drugs, often when your heart rate increases rapidly, that's when some of the problems occur. So beta blockers as a class, metoprolol being one of them, are a group of medicines that also help you control your blood pressure, um, another risk factor for heart disease and, and damage to your heart. The general consensus is that they are for longer term use, as I understand it, but it would vary from person to person how you're tolerating them, and that'd be, that'd be the kind of conversation that I'd be having with my doctor. Uh, increasingly, though, these medicines are designed to help you live longer and prevent heart disease. If you do get to a, a good age, you know, and, and you're in the, the uh, later years of life enjoying the benefits of those, often we do start to think about saying, does the person really need to be on that medicine anymore? So I, I've given up saying you've got to take it for the rest of your life because that's not actually necessarily true. You need to take it often for an extended period of time, uh, to help prevent those things happening. But have you heard about a window of beta blocker use? No. no. I mean, beta blockers have many effects, as, as Andrew has alluded to, blood pressure, rhythm, and also in terms of what we call remodelling the heart after a heart attack, it helps it improve. Um, and so in many instances, we have patients long-term on beta blockers. But I also don't tell patients it's lifelong because things change. And and uh, circumstances change and your other risk factors change and your age changes and all sorts of things. So, and if you tell someone they're going to be on the medication for the rest of their life, they get depressed. Mm. So we don't tell them that. We keep it a secret and we say, we'll check every year, <laughs> see them every year and, and say, well, I think another year will be good and, and go from there. We'll so see small how you steps. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, fascinating. Um, Jörg Eberhard, could you tell us about the linkages? What's science telling us about the linkages between oral health, dental health, and chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Dan. Good evening, everybody. So dentists 
most uh, of the time deal with two diseases. This is uh, carious decay and periodontitis. And uh, carious, you may all know, is uh, characterized by, by a loss of tooth hard substances that makes these, uh, these black holes in our teeth and are associated with a lot of pain. And on the other hand, uh, we have periodontitis, and periodontitis is characterized by a loss of bone that is supporting the tooth. And uh, uh, periodontitis is characterized by loosening of teeth, and if it is not treated, then uh, the teeth is or the uh, the, te the teeth are lost. So um, both diseases are very very frequent. So not only in Australia, but throughout uh, the Western world. So uh, people at the age of uh, 65 years or older have experienced at least at every teeth carriers and the frequency of periodontitis in the uh, uh, population is about 50%. And um, while carriers is of course a very frequent disease, the disease that is uh, mostly associated with systemic effect is periodontitis because it is a bacterially induced inflammatory disease and uh, bacteria and uh, inflammatory products that are released from the inflamed uh, tissues within the oral cavity find their way to our blood vessels and we also can so uh, sometimes detect oral bacteria in atherosclerotic plaques and there these bacteria increase the risk for cardiovascular disease <coughs> and there's really a bunch of epidemiological studies that show that periodontitis is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Uh, other chronic diseases, is there some association um, between uh, poor oral health, dent dental health and diabetes, for example, and other chronic diseases? <coughs> yeah, there is this, there's general these, these release from, of bacteria and inflammatory mediators from the oral cavity, and it also is a risk factor, therefore, for diabetes, but it's, there are studies around that show that uh, um, periodontitis is a risk factor for dementia or for preterm low birth weight, for example. Are there questions for Jürgen Hart on this linkage between oral, dental and more systemic health conditions? And maybe while we're waiting, yes? Thank you. Thanks. That's very interesting with the periodontitis. And working in mental health, a lot of my patients have very, very poor dentition. And it's now a well-known fact that they die 20 to 30 years earlier and often from cardiovascular disease. My question is, um, what's being done on a public health basis to uh, attend to people with chronic mental health disease and their dentition or lack of? Yes. <clears throat> so, so I'm new to Australia, so I'm not very familiar what is currently done uh, with uh, with people with mental health and and oral health. Uh, but we just started a, a clinical study with uh, with Stephen Lambert, and uh, where we would like to investigate this association. And I think that is always a, a good start to to do science on a certain condition. So first, we need to convince always our colleagues. From, from the university that oral health is important and we have to, uh, to make also the community aware of these oral health problems. So we start uh, these studies and I think that is very important that we collect the necessary data that then con can convince 
policy makers also. Is it too much of a leap, Jörg, to say that if we brushed our teeth every day like our dentists tell us that we might be preventing chronic diseases or, or we don't have the evidence to say that yet? Yes, so we know, so we know that, it is, that periodontal disease are risk factor and you know with risk factors we haven't really a causality so we know it is involved but we know it is not really, we may not know it if it's really the factor if we treat it then we will uh, prevent the disease. So, but we, we know for example we have a lot of interventional studies that show that uh, if we treat periodontitis some surrogate markers of, of, of uh, cardiovascular disease like flow mediated dilatation or the intermedia, uh, intima media thickness, they will improve. So we know from these surrogate markers that periodontal treatment really will improve cardiovascular health. Is it possible that a government of any persuasion will realize the relationship between oral ill health and general ill health, is it possible that we will one day see the mouth covered by Medicare? Good policy question. <coughs> yes, yeah, so, so I think that is, that is, there are two pillars so we, we would like to, to work on. The one is working in the scientific community to, uh, in collaboration and to figure out with these colleagues how the oral health has impact on systemic health. I think that is one important uh, part of our work. The other part uh, of our work is, of course, um, a meeting like we have here that we make, that, the, where that we increase the awareness of the community about the importance of our oral health. Do you know if there's a nutritional aspect to the oral health? Because with dementia and with depression, there clearly is a vitamin deficiency that can initiate this. Now you, I hear this for the first time, there's a correlation between these two. Is given that you need lysosome and you need these other enzymes to work in the mouth properly, uh, is there a correlation between proper health and nutrition? Oh, that, that's a really good and interesting uh, question. I think we all know that uh, sugar is... Uh, is a risk factor or the uh, risk factor for carious decay, but we don't know much about the association between nutrition and periodontitis. And periodontitis is this inflammatory reaction of the, in the oral cavity, with, which is much more important for systemic health. So, but interestingly, we don't know much about this, and that is also something we would like to explore here at the Sydney of uh, uh, the University of Sydney. Can I just ask, is socioeconomic status important? Absolutely, yeah. So is your postcode going to be the determinant of whether you get the oral problem? Yeah, access to dentists is, of course, a determinant diet. diet. Uh, pardon? And diet, like you said. Yeah, diet, just, we just know it for caries. We don't know it for, for periodontitis. Um, I have a very, I guess... Selfish question, um, in the fact that there's a lot of coverage in the media currently debating whether flossing is important. I want to I get to the bottom of it. Do I have to floss? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, this, uh, this article is a, is a combination of, I think, bad journalism and uh, giving the wrong information. So I, I think the uh, flossing has a very limited indication to clean in, uh, interdental spaces. 
but we have to clean interdental spaces and maybe not by flossing but using brushes or toothpicks because if we all our, ex our own experience may show that if we have a carious decay or if we have bleeding gums it all starts in the interdental space so we have to take really care to clean the interdental space but it is right for the most of the people uh, flossing is not the best uh, way to do it so we need to use uh, interdental brushes or toothpicks. So, so do you floss? I <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you really, if you really, you can do a science out of out of it, 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 and I use different sizes of interdental toothbrushes. So just for every, for every, so I, you know, maybe that that the dentist he can advise you to use. Uh, for every interdental toothbrush, uh, for every interdental space, a different toothbrush. <laughs> so, <laughs> how, how long does it take you to brush your teeth? <laughs> is it the full hour or just half an hour? <laughs> well, but it is important, you know. Oh, so I'm we, a <laughs> it's not the brushing that takes so long; it's the interdental part. Uh, precision interdental. Question here. Um, about this disease in particular and its risk to your heart, um, you said that it's caused by the, the bacteria strain getting into your blood vessel. Does that also imply that or other infectious bacterial diseases can also cause this problem to your heart? Yes, yeah, so I, I, I read a, a, a very early paper, I think it was from the 1980s, and they, fig they do an investigation of different inflammatory diseases in the whole body and if they affect the cardiovascular, if they have an effect on the cardiovascular system and they find or they found an effect on the cardiovascular disease. So I think although all uh, oral, um, oral diseases and the inflammatory diseases of the oral cavity are just an example of other uh, inflammatory diseases that may cause systemic effects. Have one here and then one final. I just wanted to ask a funny question. People, going back to my mother and a few people of her age, well, she's no longer living now, but it was fashionable to have your teeth taken out in your 50s and uh, have full dentures. So that people like that have no heart problems? <laughs> she they, have, they have no friends. <laughs> Is there any epidemiology? Oh, well, so, so we know, interestingly, we know when people uh, get, when all the teeth are removed, uh, cardiovascular parameters improve. <laughs> so, yeah. By association. Yeah. No, no, that's, 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 no, that's no, an no, intervention study, no, isn't sorry, it? Yeah, take the teeth out, yeah. No teeth or not. And by diet and healthy, um, good dental health, you mean a balanced diet with fiber, low sugar, calcium, and that sort of thing? Yeah, so, so again, we don't know much about the association between periodontitis or how diet affects periodontal disease. So we only know uh, we have... Uh, data for, uh, for for carious decay. So, of, but of course, so we so of periodontitis is also a bacteria-induced uh, disease. So we have to avoid everything that uh, increases bacterial growth on the two surfaces. So sugar is may also be uh, negative for periodontal disease. 
So final question for Jürgen and we'll come to Tom. We know that uh, water fluoridation is good for oral health. Is there a link between areas that have water fluoridation and systemic disease? So again, so fluoridation is, is good for carriers or for the prevention of carriers and we have to realize that carriers decreased throughout the, the, the period from 1960 to 1990, but it's an, on an increase again. So uh, that might be the reason that there is uh, that the people drink less uh, tap water, maybe, or that they drink more uh, sugar-sweetened beverages. That may be another uh, um, um, reason. But uh, for systemic diseases, there is no effect of fluoride. So we'll cycle back to Tom Buckley, who's going to talk a little bit more about the role of emotion. Tom, can we really uh, die of a broken heart? Um, I'm going to do what Irish people do and answer the question with, with a, a long answer. No and yes, uh, I think is the answer there. From In the medical literature, when we talk about broken heart, um, we're not talking about a heart attack. We're talking about a, a different syndrome where people get a, a stress-type heart failure. And in that scenario, it's usually not fatal, um, provided it's treated. Um, when the studies that we've done, we've looked at the association with uh, bereavement and the risk of heart attack. Um, we didn't look at the relationship between bereavement and that risk of that stress cardiac myopathy that, that, that often um, the, the media use when they talk about broken heart. That they're really, we, we're talking about broken heart in relation to that stress heart failure type scenario. <coughs> Our studies. Um, looked at what are the risks for a heart attack, i.e. a coronary artery, one of the arteries in the body, um, blocking and giving us heart attack symptoms. It's an area that really interests me for a long, long time, and, and I'm a tragic U2 fan. And, of course, everybody knows Bono is the, the president of Ireland. And anybody here who's a tragic U2 fan will know that uh, Bono writes songs on every album related to his mother. And in the last album, he wrote a song called Iris, which was his... Um, his beloved mother, who, who came in from her father's funeral and walked in the door and in front of Bono dropped dead when he was 14. And so I've always been fascinated with what, what is that link. And I did my master's degree looking at the relationship between psychosocial factors and heart disease in relation to patients who had heart attacks. But when the opportunity came to look at the relationship between bereavement and heart disease, working with a, a, a group of um, professors from this university, um, it allowed us for the first time to, to look at individuals at the time of grief and to measure what were the psychological responses, what were the behavioral responses, and what were the physiological responses or biological. In other words, we, we for the first time managed to um, uh, look at the individuals while they were experiencing the grief. We, we know from 60 years of literature um, uh, some of it which came from a, a, a professor at this university, Professor Bartrup, um, that there are, there are associations between uh, that time of bereavement and the risk of um, cardiac heart attack and cardiac death. We know from that literature, which has been consistent, including the study released last year, we know consistently that there are peaks in deaths at, at that early period. And that risk in the immediate days after losing your partner or losing your child um, can be as high as, uh, as over 20 times higher 
than any other time in, in, in your life. So we know the associations are there. Um, so when people ask me that question, I always give them the long Irish answer because, um, yes, the risk is significantly higher. The risk seems to be in those <laughs> when your, your spouse dies and the risk seems to be in when a child um, uh, dies for the parent. The, the risk is there particularly in the first month, um, much higher in immediate days, but continues significant for about six weeks. It tailors off, but it's still there at six months. Even at six months, there can be um, a 40% increased relative risk. We know the risk then remains quite static and increases again at the anniversary period. And, and interestingly, in some studies of bereaved widows, um, if they actually survive the first four years, um, then their risk of having a heart attack or dying or dying prematurely themselves is about half that of married individuals. So, so those that do survive that first four years appear to be at significantly lower. So, so it's quite complex. Um, but yes, there, there is a, a strong, consistent association with um, bereavement and the risk of heart attack. If you have a question, raise your hand. We'll get a mic to you. A question that occurs to me: I mean, grief is an, a normal human emotion or reaction to bereavement. So, what should we be doing perhaps, to reduce our risk if grief is part of life? Uh, it's a great question. Our, our study, we were able to map out what are those biological changes. And so, um, you know, one of the the things we often we often talk about as a team is that our, our mission isn't to um, interfere with the grief response. Um, I think most people would agree that, that grief is a natural response. And, and, and many experts in this area would say actually people need to grieve and they need to walk through that grieving period. And, 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 and many people uh, would say that, you know, experts would say that, that grief is actually therapeutic um, and uh, you know, is, is a positive emotion. Uh, indeed, many, many participants in our study um, told us that you know, they wanted to grieve and they wanted to hurt, so to speak. Mm. Our team's philosophy is that we, we don't want to interfere with the grief, but on the other hand, we don't want you to die of a heart attack or have a heart attack prematurely during that period of time. And so we were able to identify the changes to heart rate, the changes to the inflammatory system, the changes to the immune system, um, changes to blood pressure, um, and, and changes to our blood clotting. And we were able to identify them, which do open up opportunities for whether or not individuals at very high risk um, would benefit from uh, seeing people like Chris here and having tailored uh, preventative strategies, maybe medicines, maybe not, um, during that early period until that high risk is, is subsided. So that's one strategy. Um, our, our strategy isn't to, to stop people grieving. It's more to what can we do to, um, to not exacerbate the situation. I can give you an example of, uh, and, and my mother is probably looking down on me because she passed at the age of 58, but when, when I was at her funeral with my brothers, and, and we're, you know, they're the Irish alcoholics, I'm not, so let me just terrify them. <laughs> but what we were all out consuming a large amount of alcohol, and so was one of her best friends, um, who was not that old, because my mother wasn't that old. And uh, we got the knock on 6 o'clock in the morning from his father, who was a neighbor of ours, two doors up, um, that he was dead, found dead in bed. And so as an example of um, he was, he didn't know it, but he must have been predisposed to heart disease and risk of heart attack. Um, he was consuming very large amounts of alcohol, much more than I was consuming. Um, and, but he was also intensely grieving. 
And this is what we saw in our study. Um, I, you know, I and a research nurse, Monica, who saw these individuals in their homes within a few days of their spouse or the child dying. Um, the response is complex, and, and, and while there's a very high fluctuations in emotion that you would expect, there's also very high fluctuations in health behaviours. Mm. And we saw increases in the reports of alcohol, increases in smoking, um, loss of appetite, loss of sleep, all in the presence of you know, immune, immune imbalance, high heart rate, surges in heart rate, changes in blood pressure, changes in blood coagulation. So mm. it, it is a very complex, the other thing I'll add is that it can be very highly individual, which makes it particularly hard to have one intervention for everybody. And, and there was one, one individual in the, in the study, and um, I don't see him here, so he won't mind me saying, I pass his home every day driving home, and I look in and I wonder how he's doing. Because he said to me, he said, Tom, I'm delighted to be in the study, um, but I'm the happiest bereaved person you're ever going to have. And I said to him, why are you so happy? And he said, well, this, this, I'm actually relieved and I'm happy uh, and now I'm going to get on with my life. And I often looked in and I spoke to him a lot about that. He'd had a very turbulent relationship um, and he had been in a carer role probably against his will for numerous years. But I often look in and wonder if his bereavement trajectory was any was different and whether or not there was regret and whether or not there were other risk factors as a result of that. And that was just a good example of how individual the bereaved response or grief response is in bereavement. Any questions for Tom? Yes. I wanted to ask something related to that. I wanted to ask, have you, as you did with anger, um, classified the grief as overt or... Um, extreme or whatever, and did it follow an extended period of incredible stress and incredible um, pressures on that grieving individual? And what do those things have in relation to coping with your cardiac health? Yeah, it's a very good question. And last year we, we published a paper looking specifically at um, what was the... You know, how could you predict how well individuals coped, um, what coping strategies they used, and how did that have a relationship with how they were traveling at six months? Six months seems to be an important time. Um, there's a, a literature which suggests that for most people, um, symptoms, psychological symptoms, tend to wane significantly at six months. At six months, you expect people to be re-engaged with, with activities of living, um, uh, hopefully a lot earlier. But at six months, those that are not um, tend to not fare as well in their, in their grief response. And so we did look at um, some of the factors that are involved there, and we found that those that were more prepared um, tended to fare a lot better at six months. And, um, we also looked at some of the coping strategies and some of the uh, uh, type of way people cope. Um, the, those with the highest level of grief initially um, are the, seem to be the same individuals who have the highest level again at six months. So you can you can look at individuals who it's very hard to say who's excessive, you know, whose grief symptoms are excessive. We can use scales to measure them and quantify who's the highest in our sample. And what we found was those individuals don't cope as well out at six months. In relation to some of the biological measures, um, if we measure anxiety in that early period, 
um, then we find that those that have the highest anxiety symptoms. And anxiety is not necessarily, it's one symptom of grief, it's not every symptom of grief, but those who are exhibiting high anxiety levels at area period, they, they're the ones who are associated with the, the highest physiological turbulence, if we use that language. So they were the ones that seemed to be at the highest risk. I guess this will touch on a few of the areas tonight, but you've mentioned alcohol a lot here with the grief, and I know that a lot of, particularly with the younger people, as you said earlier, with having a lot of the energy drinks, that there are now a lot of combinations between alcohol and energy drinks or even some of the illicit drugs mentioned earlier. Is there, I guess, should there be a very, I know, um, I guess, form of education to show that this is a very dangerous cumulative effect? Can they build up really, really dangerously? Is it just like the, all the individual risk factors are still the same or can it, if you added two of them, is the risk significantly greater then? It's a very, very good observation. I mean, we, we all carry some level of risk um, and we can contribute to that risk in our behaviours. Um, and so we can accumulate risk by accumulating behaviours that are associated with risk. So I often think of um, growing up in Ireland when my parents got me out of bed early to go and deliver calves in the middle of the night. You know, so middle of the night's not a great time to be awake. It's freezing, might even be snowing. You get angry with your parents. and You, you add on all these and then you go out and you try to pull a calf out of a cow. Um, growing up as a farmer and you're struggling and the calf might be in trouble and you know your dad is going to kill you in the morning because the calf dies you know all these stress factors but I think you know when you're 16 17 18 years of age your absolute risk of having a heart attack is quite low um, but that scenario for an 80 year old um, you know and add, add in another risk factor of alcohol or add in another risk factor and you're just accumulating risk factors I think what, what's important is to recognize that those chronic or long-term risk factors um, predict your long-term risk. What, what, what they don't do is tell you when you might have the heart attack, which hopefully will only be once and on one day and in one hour. And, and I guess what we're trying to identify is where are those periods? Where are those periods of time where, where it's more likely to occur? And if you're somebody who already has a higher absolute risk, then, then either avoiding those periods, such as the anger, the anger study showing for two hours you're still at risk. Now, when I have a good argument with my wife, um, I'll go for a run, I'll be back in two hours. Um, I probably shouldn't go for a very high intensity run um, because I'll be contributing more risk, um, uh, but I should definitely not re-engage in the argument for two hours. Um, I start consciously thinking that kind of thing. Um, when we look at bereavement, the risk goes on for a long period. Um, that risk is out to six months. It's much, much higher in the first six weeks, obviously higher in the first day, and then subsides. But even in that two-week period that we were studying, we were seeing significant psychological and biological changes. That's not the time period, I think, to be adding to the risk by excessive alcohol, perhaps excessive smoking, perhaps excessive caffeine. Um, so your question of cumulative risk is real, is real, and you're adding up risks. So that individual who's drinking, smoking, um, taking Red Bull, who's um, you know in a highly emotional state, the highly emotional state has raised their risk you know, significantly, and now you just keep adding to it. Yeah. Maybe just to add on the combination, um, certainly from a pharmacological point of view, 
Um, alcohol, while we often consume quite a volume of it, uh, ethanol itself actually dehydrates us. So it actually, you probably realise you go to the bathroom more. And one of the reasons, you know, I've studied this extensively in N of 1 clinical studies, um, I've uh, found that, you know, when, you're, when you have a hangover, not that I have, I'm just saying, you know, in that um, scenario, a part of that issue is dehydration. So being dehydrated and then also having um, excessive doses of stimulants like um, cigarette smoking or also caffeine or illicit drugs, that, that is a potent combination along with risk factors, emotional risk factors, then it becomes very challenging. In an otherwise fit person, that may not be a big issue, but it could be the tipping point. So when you say, what can we do about it? Well, one is awareness, um, but importantly, it's dose. Uh, and if you've got good friends and they see dangerous behaviours, then what you, a good friend does is to help that person to avoid uh, you know, taking it too far, which I think is a, a, you know, one of the messages that we always encourage young people to know about. I mean, the, the problem with energy drinks and alcohol, of course, is the problem that if I have a number of drinks of alcohol, after a while I might get loud, but then I'll get quiet and sit in the corner and that's the end of the night for me. Yeah. When you have an energy drink combined with alcohol, the problem is you drink more. Yeah, go longer. Because the alcohol is having one effect on you and then the energy drink is keeping you awake and stimulated. And there was a beautiful study out of a group at Westmead Hospital a couple of years ago which basically showed energy drinks with or without alcohol there's much more reports to, you know, nine, to triple O calls related to palpitations, sort of psychotic behaviours. Um, these are all acute effects. Um, violent activity, criminal activity, you know, going home and building up, you know, a partner or that sort of thing. So, you know, there's a specific problem there apart from the accumulated risk of the acute risk. And I think if energy drinks are bad enough, energy drinks plus alcohol is, is even worse. We need to wrap and close, so we'll take one more question and then we'll um, close the event. Um, so on the flip side to the last question, is there any evidence around the protective factors of things like gentle exercise with cardiac risk in grief? There hasn't been a study that has studied it um, the way you present it. Um, I have not seen any evidence in our studies or in other studies that, uh, uh, you know, I mean, somebody who's already physically fit um, will have a lower cardiac risk profile than somebody who isn't and will be at a lower risk to start with. Um, their own relative risk will be up, but they're still starting at a lower risk. So intuitively, you would say it would be good to be physically fit. Um, I guess when we say exercise, I think we have to be very careful that, um, you know, is it, are we going to prescribe exercise during grief? And if we are, could we be adding risk in that early period of getting fit? So I think you'd have to balance that out. Um, as we said earlier, exercise is cardiac protective, but during the period of time of doing it, you are going to increase your, your risk in that period of time. So um, I mean, the, the challenge in bereavement is, um, you know, it's not necessarily in the early period when the highest risk is, you, you might be limited by what interventions you can do. Um, you know, trying to teach somebody to meditate the day after their wife or child has died is probably not going to be successful. It might be successful, successful months down the road as a more maintenance strategy. And so we have to look at the individual and what's right for them. Um, I, I think of my own experience when I got the news my mother passed, the first thing I did was put my running shoes on and I ran hard, very hard, but, but I've been a competitive athlete 
for 25 years. So, yeah, I was conditioned to do that, but would I suggest that everybody does something like that? No, I think we have our own individual responses. And, uh, you know, when we talk about exercise, of course, going for a walk to the beach or going for a walk around the lake or going for a walk in, in nature. And interestingly, there are studies showing that when you walk in a naturalistic environment, you actually get a different physiological response to when you walk in a city. So I think there, you know, if we're looking at gentle exercise as in being mobilization or as in going to somewhere therapeutic and walking and strolling or um, then I think that's very different to telling somebody hop on your bicycle and go and cycle mad for an hour. You know, so, so I think there, there hasn't been, hasn't been tested, um, but I think the, not the knowledge that exercise generally um, does lower your risk. Um, yeah. Thank you. We're about to wrap and close. So a couple of ad spots and then a thank you. Um, if you've enjoyed tonight, you might also be interested in the final forum from the Sydney Ideas Health Forum, Childhood Infectious Diseases, Protecting Kids from the Cradle to the Mosh Pit. That'll be Cheryl Jones, Professor Cheryl Jones, um, on Wednesday the 12th of October. If you have uh, enjoyed tonight and you'd like to see uh, more Sydney Ideas Forums, please go to the website, Sydney, you can see it there.edu.au, Sydney Ideas, to learn more uh, about upcoming forums um, from Sydney Ideas. Um, I want to thank uh, the expert panel tonight, Professor Chris Samsarian, um, Andrew McLaughlin, Jörg Eberhard, um, and Tom Buckley, if you put your hands together. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much.